This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe. If you're listening to this on podcast, if you can leave a review, this allows my content to get in front of more people. And thank you for that. My name is Judy Cho, and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition. And I have a private practice where we focus on root cause healing. And that starts with the carnivore cures, all meat elimination diet. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Sean Baker. He's a repeat guest.、Uh, we had him on last year around January because it's World Carnivore Month, and he is the creator of World Carnivore Month. I believe he said that it's World Carnivore Month number six, and it's also the month of his birthday. So, happy birthday again, Dr. Sean Baker. Dr. Sean Baker is a medical doctor and is the co founder of Rivero. He is also an orthopedic surgeon, a world leading authority on treating disease with medical nutritional therapy, such as the carnivore diet, an Amazon best selling author, a world champion athlete, an international speaker, podcast host, and nutritional consultant. Most people know Dr. Baker. He shares a lot of funny content about eating all meat and, or mostly meat, and then Making fun of people that don't eat meat. More than anything, he really is trying to help people get back to health that are maybe obese or struggling with some type of illness. In this conversation, we talk a lot about controversial things, controversial in the sense of censorship, anti meat propaganda, as well as a lot of the narratives in this carnivore community that as it grows, how much of the things that are recommended, whether it's lots of fat, whether it's organs, whether it's carbohydrates, How much of this is really needed to thrive? Now, we are not picking sides or picking at people. We are really just trying to get into the conversation of what is required for optimal health on an all meat carnivore diet. I hope that this information provides you just information to how to be successful on a carnivore diet, especially as we're celebrating and closing World Carnivore Month. Let's get right into the interview. Hey, Dr. Baker, I know we're kind of doing a co interview, but I'm super excited to have you join my channel again. It's World Carnivore Month. I want to squeeze this into one, celebrate your birthday. As well as celebrate what you created, which is this movement of World Carnivore Month. So, how are、yeah. you doing? 
I'm good. And you know, it's funny that topic is, and the reason World Carnival Month is in January, because that is when my birthday is. And I didn't like the fact that Veganuary was in January. I said, that right. sucks. So let's do Carnival. And so it's, yeah, it's a sixth year. We've been doing this for six years now, and it's pretty cool. This year in particular, I think it's really, really, really taken off this year. And I think it's really cool. I got Rogan's doing it again. It's trending on Twitter. Uh, so we're seeing Carnival really, really growing. And I think it's, you know, due to not just me, but many, many people out there, you know, yourself included, and many other ones that are out there just, you know, sharing knowledge and sharing success, which I think is, is, is really, really been powerful. So it's been a lot of fun. And thank you for doing what you do as well, Judy. Well, thank you for sharing. I mean, it's because of people like you that I learned about it healed my own illness. And now I'm sharing and giving back because I think that's how we will move people is these stories of healing beyond the science a lot of people are more motivated to heal when they hear people's stories of I fixed this because of just changing my diet. And it's so simple, but there's not enough messaging out there. So again, I'm thankful that you created World Carnivore Month. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun to see. It's funny. You know, it gives people a little taste, you know, a little taste of that. And I always get all these people like, wow, I can't believe it. I feel get still feel still so much better. My back pain went away. I lost 12 pounds. I on it, I got off two medications. It's really cool. It can happen in, in a short time. So it's been a neat thing to do. Yeah. So the last time we had you on, you were just talking about Rivero and how you'll be doing funding. And so this is just kind of like an update. Is there any updates you'd like to share about Rivero and where it's heading? plans for this year? Yeah, absolutely. This is an exciting year for us. So as you guys know, or some of you may know, we did some fundraising last year. We ended up raising $5 million to get us started. And so we have been, we've been working busily. We're doing research in the background. We're looking at, you know, cost savings associated with diets. From the research angle, um, we are building out a, a huge software platform applications. You know, we've got a software design team. We've got a team helping us with content to get the, the the information out there. And then we are in a process of hiring the healthcare providers. And so we plan on probably uh, launching sometime late spring to early summer of this year, most likely in all 50 states where we'll start seeing patients. And so we'll be able to provide actual medical, medical care, not just health coaching, but de-prescribing, prescribing medication, and mostly de-prescribing. That's our goal. And, and the, all the physicians and healthcare providers we hire, they understand that our goal is to ideally get people off medications as opposed to the standard, you know, standard thing is where you just mindlessly keep prescribing more and more medications and never think about getting people off. And so that is coming soon. So we're really excited about that. And it's going to be a busy and wonderful and, you know, fun, fun year for us this year. That's awesome. So would people be able to use you as a third party network for insurance? Eventually. So initially, we're going to start like, like I mentioned to you earlier before we recorded that we're going to go what's called B2C. So we'll go directly to, to clients or customers. Okay. They can, they can access us directly. There's going to be a fee associated with that. And then we've got, uh, you know, the next sort of step in that process is going directly to companies that are self-insured. So they cover the health, health costs of their employees. Obviously they stand to either lose a lot of money or gain a lot of money, depending if their patients gets, or their, their employees get sick. And so if we can get on those guys and say, Hey, we'll take, you know, whatever percentage of your employees you want, to take care of, we can make sure they're healthier, therefore saving you money, saving everybody money, and, and then ultimately helping the, the patient. And then eventually going to insurers and saying, hey, look, we'd like to offer our services as part of your insurance plan. And and that precedent's already been set by Verta Health, who has been doing something similar uh, with directly with type 2 diabetes. Now, we'll be able to handle much more than type 2 diabetes. As we've seen gut health improvements, mental health improvements, autoimmune improvements, on and on and on. So we'll be able to probably be fairly, fairly uh, broad in the conditions we're able to treat. That's awesome. I want to shift topics to this, obviously the discussion of as carnivore becomes more popular, there's so many different narratives of, you know, what works on carnivore. Some people say you need carbs. Some people say 
you need high fat. Some people say you need organ meats. And there's all this nuance now in the community. And back when I started five years ago, it wasn't like that. And I love that the community was wholesome. And it's not as, I guess, one and and I know as people heal, maybe people have different opinions of how it works. What are your thoughts on all this stuff that's going on in the community now? Well, you know, I think I don't know about wholesome or not, but I mean, I think that, you know, there was a definition of what a carnivore diet meant. And right. it meant basically animal products, you know, maybe a little bit of spice and some tea or something like that. But the, the essence of it was animal products, you're avoiding plant foods, you're certainly not eating much in the way of carbohydrates. That was what was going on. This was a healing protocol that the original people, and I wrote this book, you know, The Carnivore Diet, and it was published in 2019. And this is where the term became popular. You know, I, I created the popular term, The Carnivore Diet. I didn't invent eating meat, obviously. The influence that I got was from people like, you know, Amber O'Hearn and Charles Washington, the Andersons and other folks that had been doing this for, you know, decades before I'd even heard of this. And I mean, basically their observation was people that were eating just plain old meat were doing well. They weren't, they didn't care if they had organ meats, who cares? Maybe they did, maybe they don't. It's not, a, not essential. Certainly they weren't telling you to, you know, slurp down honey and eat, you know, 50 bananas a day or whatever. That wasn't part of it. And that worked for them and it's fine. And I think there's, there's some value in understanding that. And I think that's an important concept. And I think for many people, and then, you know, the other thing is, you know, you get people like, you know, liver King and some of these guys eating raw organs and they're eating their raw testicles. And honestly, most people are kind of repulsed by that. I mean, I am, I mean, I wouldn't do that. Is it the worst thing in the world to do? Maybe not. I know you've discussed potential toxicities associated with overconsumption of liver, and there's guys out there talking about vitamin A toxicity now. And I'm sure there's something to that to a degree. But I think, I mean, if you go back to the earliest influencers of this modern carnivore diet, and you look at even like guys like uh, Stefanson, you know, the explorer, the, the, the Canadian explorer of Icelandic uh, heritage, who went up and lived with the Inuit for, you know, a decade. And he flat out says, look, you just need meat and fat. I mean, that's it. That's the only thing you need to survive. And I think that very statement is is very true for the vast majority of people. And I think anybody that says you must consume you know X amount of organ meats or you must consume X amount of carbohydrates to be healthy, I think that's not a true statement. I think that's that's basically maybe for that person they felt better doing that, but to to blanket say that this is what you must do and the only way you can do a carnivore diet. Like I see people right now saying that if you're cooking your food, you're doing the carnivore diet wrong. And, you know, I'm like, well, you know, humans have been cooking food for a long, long time. Now, if you're, if you believe in an evolutionary model, then that, that period of time is maybe as far back as one and a half million years ago. Even if you don't believe in that and you believe in a creationist model, we've been cooking meat for 8,000 years. So, I mean, we're well adapted to cook, cook food. And I think the sort of, you know, the belief about gorging on organ meats, now you have to put fruit in there to save your thyroid or whatever they're talking about. The data doesn't support that, at least in in my observation. I see a lot of people do the carnivore diet, probably as much as anybody or more. You know, I've seen, I've taken data on thousands. I've got I've got survey data on twelve thousand people doing this diet. If you look at the Harvard University study where they talk about, I specifically, you know, I helped them set up that study, and I said specifically, you know, I had nothing to do with the inf- the results of it, but I said, hey guys, make sure you ask a question about organ meats and stuff like that. And they specifically did. If you read that study, it basically says that organ meats. Supplementing with organ meats had no positive bearing on the outcome. It did not prevent nutritional deficiencies. It did not lessen diseases any more than, than without it. So, I, you know, again, that's just 
what the results are. Now, there are people out there that maybe have a, a financial interest in making you think that you have to have organs and, you know, they, they, coincidentally, they sell supplements. And I get a little skeptical when I see that stuff, which I think most people, sh- you should be skeptical, I think, in many cases. Right. Agree with so much of what you just said. I work with just carnivores or mostly meat-based or ketogenic diet-focused clients and patients. And a lot of them, um, maybe they started with some organ supplements because they felt that they needed it. But when we run lab works, it doesn't move the needle enough. I just interviewed Dr. Cho, who uh, runs the Low Carb MD podcast. And he was telling me that a lot of his patients that have low folate levels, they take the grass finished liver uh, supplements because that's supposed to be high in um, folate. But he found that no one was improving their folate markers until they took the standard, um, a, I guess a higher quality supplement of folate that was third party tested, and then their folate markers went up quickly. And so he said, I don't know what it is about those liver supplements, but they are not increasing folate as people market. And so then I went and I always try to prove and find the data of why. So I went then and I looked at some of the graphics I made from the USDA and in one ounce of liver. So that's six capsules. One ounce of liver only has 20% of your daily value of folate. So you need six capsules to even hit 20, which isn't that much, but it's marketed as one of the best foods for folate. But you would have to then consume five ounces of liver every single day just to meet the daily value. And not to say that the daily value is super correct, but that's one of the biggest marketing ploys for why you need to consume liver is the folate. But how many people are eating five ounces a day? And that equals 30 capsules of the liver supplements. And again, that doesn't cover the level of copper toxicity that you would get or the vitamin A, hypervitaminosis A from that. And so again, it's why are we eating this really nutrient dense food? Yes, it's high in B12, but you can get that in steak. So if it's not that folate's rich in that, well, you can get folate also in egg yolks. I think 12 egg yolks would give you that 100% daily value as well. So I would rather do 12 egg yolks then eat five ounces of liver, which also has too much other nutrition. Again, one thing I would say is I have seen some people on the carnivore diet that have had low folate. You know, usually they're not symptomatic though. I mean, right, it's just, right. I mean, what are we seeing macrocytic anemia? No. Are right. we seeing, you know, sores in the mouth? No. Are we seeing any sort of generalized systemic symptoms? No. So the question is, is a low serum folate level in the context of a carnivore diet and when you're completely asymptomatic, is it even worth worrying about? And I'm not sure that it is. And so I think this is one of the things we talk about the USDA, I mean, sorry, the RDA requirements for vitamins, the standard reference range labs. And and we're talking about a population of, of usually Americans that are on a grain-based diet. Right. And so I don't know if that translates well. And like I said, I'm I'm just like, show me the clinical deficiency state that's that's occurring and you know because then the, the counter argument is well it could be subclinical and you can't tell and better to be safe than sorry and maybe that's true but i i'm skeptical of that as well because i think it's just a vehicle that it's just kind of like the people tell me well you better do this or you're going to die in 30 years i'm right. like well you know hey i'm going to die in 30 years maybe anyway so why do i need to do this or that yeah but it's interesting to see that even the, those overpriced because i mean the, i think the markup on those things is something in the order of like three thousand percent or some yes. ridiculous amount it's something so high and to sit there and sell that and it doesn't even really make much of a difference on the serum folate level it's like well why the hell am i taking it anyway what's what's the benefit here i have heard people anecdotally say well i felt better when i took them and i would say you know perhaps there is an argument to be made that early on in the diet maybe if you're if you're coming from a really really poor quality diet and you're really really nutrient depleted 
maybe for a short period of time, adding these foods in. And I, again, I would rather, if you're going to eat organ meats, just eat the organ meats. Don't yeah. pay for the oversight price supplements. Do that for a period of time. And then most people, I, you know, I've talked to people like Amber O'Hearn, who's been doing this diet forever. I mean, she is smart about this as anybody. And she says, you know, she would get to a period where she would have liver for a little while and then she didn't want it anymore. It was just like the craving was gone. It, it in fact became repulsive. And so it's kind of like, you know, maybe there's a deficiency state, pregnancy, stress, uh, injury, uh, illness where maybe you need a little bit more nutrition. And then most of the time you don't do that. And, you know, you look at, you know, like some of these recommendations for how much you eat. And then I just look at an animal. I'm like, well, a cow weighs, you know, 1200 pounds. You're going to get 600, 600 pounds of, you know, meat out of that animal. And you're going to get what, 10 pounds of liver. I mean, that's that you, even if you do the math on it, it would, it, it would result in a very small amount. And then you realize if you've ever gone hunting, those organs don't keep very well. They're hard right. to preserve, you know? And so it's like, how much do we actually eat historically? Cause I know people often, they, they'll point to hunter gather populations today, modern time, the Hadza. And these guys are out there eating baboon penises because there's nothing else for them to right. eat. I mean, they're literally starving to death if they don't eat everything. And I don't think that is how humans evolved. I mean, we didn't we didn't grow a big brain by starving all the time. And I think we had we we lived in a surplus environment when we were hunting these big animals, these big mammoths that were abundant, and we were able to kill them very easily. So you had access to plenty of calories, you had access to plenty of fat. You probably ate the parts that you, just like we do today. I mean, everybody that goes to the grocery store, you buy a bunch of food and you eat all the good stuff first, right? <laughs> You're just like, I'm going to eat the stuff that I like first, and I'll save the less rest for. Or maybe I won't even eat it. Maybe it went up in the trash. So it's just kind of funny. I think we would have done that. I think that's how humans are. Yeah. And using some of the arguments you just used. So in the community that loves the organs and they say, well, you need it because of folate, because of something. And let's say that we really do believe in the RDAs. But what? But then what about their argument for vitamin C? But so vitamin C's RDA doesn't matter though. You know, it, it's just always, it's a lot of this picking and choosing. And even with the ancestral arguments of, well, the certain animals went for the organs first. Well, maybe they went for the organs one, as you said, because the organs are the easiest to get to. They're not, you know, they're not around a lot of the bone. So maybe that's why, or maybe it's also because it's spoiled first. So they knew from previous kills that it's easier to grab organs. And so it's just, well, I mean, you know, to elaborate on that. Well, first of all, I mean, we're not, we're not wild animals, <laughs> tigers or lions, but I mean, even still, I mean, most like if you look at what a, what a lion will prey upon, they're preying on relatively lean animals, zebras, wildebeest, things like that. And those animals have very little fat in their musculature. It's very little. And so they need some fat. They don't need as much as humans, but they need some. Where are they going to get that fat from? Where are they going to get it from? The perinephric fat, from the omentum, the mesentery, the pericardiac fat, the, you know. So they're going to get, their, their internal organs is the only place they're going to get fat. They, they can't, their jaw structure is not set up so they can crack skulls and, and they can access the brain. They can't really get bone marrow. They can't get long. They, don't, they can't break the long bones very well. So they're going to, they're going to preferentially go get fat first. And then, you know, once they fill that up and then you think about it, if, again, if we believe in an evolutionary model, it's very widely believed that, that the earliest hominids started out scavenging. And so they would go behind those animals who have already picked off all the organs and picked off, you know, a lot of the fat, you know, a lot of the meat. And then humans went in there and got whatever meat was left over, probably cracked the skull, got some bone marrow to get the fat. And it's, I mean, there's studies out of Africa where they followed lions around and they look at like how much, how much meat do they leave on a zebra car carcass? And it's usually something like 20 kilos of meat, you know, is what they leave behind. And that's a lot of meat. You know, you think about it, that's, you know, 10 people's food for the day or something like that. So there's a lot, a lot left behind. So we started out scavenging, probably eating muscle meat, probably eating fat, you know, in the, in the form of either brain or marrow. But I think it was more for the fat content more than anything else. And I think, you know, if you think about 
energetically, where were we? Because you know, liver itself is obviously high in protein. It's higher in iron and copper and those things, but it's not really high in, it's not a really fatty cut of meat. So you're not getting a lot of energy in from there. And if you're thinking about how did you grow that brain, that you, how did you go from a 300cc australopithecine brain up to a 1700cc Neanderthal brain or you know 1500cc Homo sapien brain? You had to get dietary fat. You had to get a concentrated amount of calories, and that's that's the you know Ayala Wheeler, Wheeler hypothesis, you know from the 1980s where they talk about the you know the shrinking of the gut and the enlargement of the brain. So expensive tissue hypothesis, rather. The last thing I just want to bring up with the organs is. I know a lot of people will say, well, all the fat soluble vitamins balance. And if you look at the nutritional profile again of liver is that vitamin A is super high. Three and a half ounces gives you many, many percentages over the hundred percent of daily value. Whereas D, E, and K, they don't even hit like 20% of the daily value. So then again, it goes back to why are we eating? There's if you, yes, if you look at the nutrient profile of liver, certain nutrients are high. But if you take a closer look in terms of symbiotic relationships, there's an imbalance. So just like copper and zinc balance, there's not a lot of zinc in liver. There's not a lot of vitamin D, E, and K. You would get a better balance if you just ate muscle meat. I just think this nuance is so important when people want to really medically push this way of eating as a healing tool. Well, then we need to just get all these little things correct because it's not that we're missing too much liver, that that's why most of America is sick. That's not the truth. And it's not that we're not eating sticks of butter. And that's why we are sick as a, it's just all the processed foods, the processed carbs, processed oils. And if we remove a lot of that and make this diet just accessible for more people, a lot more people will heal. And that's where I think you and I really align in our messaging. If most people just ate meat, butter, and eggs, they would heal. And you don't have to worry about all that other additional nuance. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people are doing that. I mean, a lot, we are seeing that. And it's, it's certainly a lot more appealing. You know, if I say, Hey, just go eat some steak and eggs for breakfast. And then some other guy's saying, you got to go, you know, sleep on a, sleep on a, on a, on a rock and, and eat raw testicles. I mean, you know, what's going to be easier to sell than the other. And it's not just about selling it, but I mean, it's what actually really works. And so I've been around long enough to seeing that people are out there just eating plain old ground beef and maybe some eggs or maybe not, maybe some bacon. And they're doing great. I mean, they're coming off medications. They're losing uh, all kinds of body fat. I mean, it, it just really works. And I think that's that's an important thing. And I mean, particularly when it comes to like, you know, we're getting into this sort of grass-finished beef versus grain-finished beef. And, and even that discussion is, I think, more about this sort of utopian belief system rather than what actually works. And again, when I wrote the book, The Carnivore Diet, the guiding, the touchstone for me was what was actually working in people. Not what I believed, not what I thought the science said. I'm like, what actually works in people? And I think that's a really important concept. And I think, you know, because you see it day to day in the clients you have, and I see it in the people I see every day, and I see what really works and what's necessary and what's unnecessary. And again, you know, like I said, there's always going to be people that are opportunistic in, in, in any environment. And they're going to say, oh, there, oh, there's a new trend. Let me jump on this. And set up my, you know, and you know, you, we, we see, we start seeing people that all of a sudden, well, I've been doing the carnivore diet for 37 years. Well, who are you? I never heard of you before. You know, it's just like these people come up out of the woodwork and they're, they're all of a sudden they're like, yeah, well, okay. I guess you never decided to talk about it until six months ago, I guess. Sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's kind of funny. I see some of that right. stuff in the place because I mean, anybody, you know, as you probably, been, I mean, I've been very open and vocal about this and I've been doing this now. This is my, I'm starting my seventh year. I started doing this in 2016. I've got the receipts. I've been showing pictures of meat and steaks for six solid years. You know, it's, it's kind of funny. And I, I know the people that I believe have been really doing this for a long time. What has been proven to work over the long haul, you know, if, and, and, you know, like you said, 
you got people in there that are pushing organ meats real hard. And then, you know, six months later, like, ah, the carnivore diet doesn't work. I better eat a bunch of fruit. Right. Maybe the organ meat was actually detrimental, particularly to the degree that they're pushing it to to the success of this. And and it caused some of the, the issues that they're attributing to, quote unquote, the carnivore diet, as was sort of told to them by their bet, their elders. And they didn't listen to them. Like you guys are wrong. It's like these kids telling their parents are wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> Your experience doesn't count. You're wrong. I know a better way because I can read, I can read the literature and I'm a, I'm a, whatever I'm a, whatever. These are my credentials and I must be smarter than you. And I'm like, man, I think you can just, a lot of times you can leave it up to people that figure this stuff out, you know, cultures that figure stuff out in many right. cases. And then there's a sort of wisdom of the crowds like Tim Noakes like to speak about. And you can kind of figure out why, why is this working? And then you can kind of apply it as what we're doing is saying, wow, this is really great. These people have figured out something that really works. Let's, let's export it out to a lot of people with ulcer colitis or whatever the, whatever the issue is. And we're seeing these great, great results. And that's really the really exciting part, I think. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you. And I think when it even comes to carbohydrates, I know that there's a lot of these advocates that maybe they were eating carnivore once and then it didn't work. And then once they add in carbs, which is sort of a stimulant, they feel better, but it's just how long does it take for them to maybe not feel better anymore? And if it was really a true statement that you need carbs, then how are you subsisting? How am I subsisting? How are we thriving on? And there's so many of us and it's just the logical. Okay. So maybe there's a species of humans that need carbohydrates. But for some of us, we just don't it the logic is just from a logical perspective, it's just not there. And I think that's part of the issue. I think if magically, all the carbs in the world were just to disappear tomorrow, and and then humans had access to unlimited quantities of meat, I think everybody would do fine. I think everybody because it's, it's really a choice. I mean, yeah, you know, hey, God, there's cake, it tastes really, really good. I like that. You know, I want to eat that. So I'm going to justify it in any way I can. But um, honestly, you know, like I said, I'm on World Carnivore Month. I mean, I'm eating nothing but red meat and water right now. And then, you know, throughout the year, I'll have some eggs and I'll have a little bit of dairy occasionally. And that's my normal pattern. But I literally feel the best I ever do when I'm on red meat and water. And I've done red meat and water for three years straight. I mean, I've literally like nothing else and, and, and no problems. And I was like, well, I'll put some eggs in here and play around a little bit. But I mean, you know, so clearly we can, we can survive without carbohydrates. I, you know, gosh, I break world records without carbohydrates. And so it's kind of like, how are you, um, you know, saying that it's absolutely necessary? It's certainly not for everybody. I mean, at the very least, you can say some people can do fine without carbohydrates. I think that's the minimum conservative statement you can make. I mean, if you even go back a hundred years ago, I mean, how many foods in the grocery stores today didn't exist a hundred years ago that we have access to now? And some people can't live without that. I can't live without my whatever, my sourdough bread. I can't live without my, you know, cheesy doodles. I can't live without my Oreo cookies. They didn't even exist a hundred years ago. Of course you could have. And it's the same thing with carbohydrates. You know, before the invitation of invention of agriculture, what cauliflower didn't exist. Broccoli didn't exist. You know, all these things, you know, artichokes didn't exist. None of those things, even we made those are human created vegetables. They didn't even exist. I mean, bread didn't exist. 20,000 years ago, no one heard of bread, wasn't there. And we were, we were, now you could say, well, we had some berries and maybe we dug up some, some, you know, some old, you know, ancient carrots that were, you know, half wood and, you know, you know, hard to chew. But, but I mean, you know, like I said, I, I think, like I said, if you, if you were to try, like anytime you watch one of these, these TV shows, these survival shows and you stick them out in the woods, they're eating eating meat. And if they want to survive, they're eating meat and they're not, they don't eat anything else. I mean, that's, that's for sure. Yeah. And even the whole belief system of eat the rainbow in the plant. When I, when I was writing my book, I found it's a new coin term by the plant-based community. It didn't exist. I mean, as you talked about cauliflower, uh, kale, broccoli, all of them are from that mustard plant. 
And it's like, how are we eating the rainbow? It's just a hundred, 200 years ago, we were lucky to have maybe one or two crops on our plate. It wasn't this rainbow that we now, and I just think if we just take a second and think about the logic of what we hear and does this make sense? And if we were to just take that pause and think about it, we would not be in a lot of the health issues that we are today. Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, like I said, our food system is just, is absolutely abysmal. And I mean, I think you see it in, I don't know if you're paying attention, but I know they just, the uh, FDA just approved, uh, a, you know, the GLP-1 agonist for 12 year old oh, kids. Obesity, okay. you know? So you've got these kids now that, um, you know, it's just going to, it's going to, you're just going to reinforce, keep eating the garbage. Here's a shot, you know, and, and, and now these kids are on a drug for the rest of their life, starting at 12. Otherwise they, they, they have this rebound obesity, uh, due to fight vessel hyperplasia. And so it's, it's just like, you know, we're just, we're just ignoring history, historical print. And it's not even that old history. It's like you said, go back, go back 150 years before we had mass, you know, you know tr- transport and for refrigeration, you could not eat. 90% of the, of the food pyramid. I mean, it's just, it just would not have been available to you year round for sure. And so it is, and all those people survived and they were our great, great grandparents and they made it somehow. Right. right, and, right. And, they, and they weren't dying of, uh, you know, people say, well, their life expectancy wasn't as long. And, you know, it's like, well, they had a high infant mortality rate. They had, you know, infectious diseases. They were, you know, they had, it was a much more challenging environment to live in, but at the same time, the, the human species has propagated for literally thousands and thousands, if not hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years in Homo sapiens, eating a very limited diet. I agree. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. What are your thoughts about, I mean, obviously, it's very hard to not come by all the anti-meat propaganda where we should be eating, I don't know, like an ounce a day. I don't even know what the recommendations are at this point. Seven grams of red (laughs) meat a day is eat lancet. Seven grams. So I, I did some research on... Um, anemia around the world, and it's still really rampant. There's been no improvement since year 2000. Um, In mothers that are able to conceive as well as young children under the age of five, there's a lot of anemia. So it is, I think, personally unethical to recommend people in these poor countries to not eat meat. And so I think that's where the Bill Gates and these elitists in the world are saying so the these um, Americas and these other weller off countries should start reducing their meat count, which is absurd. What are your thoughts about the anti-meat? I see egg prices skyrocketing. Um, do you have any concerns with access to meat? Well, yeah, I do. I mean, I think that that, that certainly could become an issue. You know, see what's happening in like the Netherlands where they're trying to get, right. you know, 3,000 3, farms shut down. Right. Um, there, You know, I mean, it's it's just kind of like the given. It. And, and the problem is there's been so much propaganda for so many years that the average person thinks it's a good idea to cut back on meat. That's, that's the sentiment out there. If you look about that, not in the carnivore community, the low carb community where people have been, you know, hearing the anti-propaganda, I suppose, but the average person still thinks, well, yeah, I like meat and I don't think, I think the plant-based stuff is garbage, but I think in general, we should cut back on meat. I, you know, I think that's a very dangerous thing. And, and you are right. Like iron deficiency anemia is one of the number one leading deficiencies in the world. And it causes, right 
a tremendous amount of suffering, women, children, and, you know, for a lot of stunting, you know, things like that. So we have a lot of problems throughout the world. And Bill Gates has said that he believes that all Western developed countries should go to fully synthetic meat. And obviously he's invested in that. So he's got a conflict of interest there. And I think the problem was, you know, certainly with the plant-based options, people are, people are seeing it's highly processed, just junk food. So most people understand this is just more garbage. So at least that message is out there. Most people understand that highly processed junk is not good for them. Even if they believe they need to cut back on meat, they can't eat that. And so what's the next thing out there? Well, then people are starting to hang their hats on cell generated, you know, cellular agriculture, you know, the so-called lab-grown meat, whatever you want to call it. And And that's got huge, huge problems. You know, number one, it's probably more environmentally taxing due to the reliance on monocrops for inputs for those cells. The cells just don't grow out of air. They need food. They got to feed those cells. And what are those cells going to eat? Well, the protein is going to come from soybeans and peas and peas and stuff like that. And the glucose is going to come from sugar crops. And so you're still just further deriving this monoculture agriculture, this, this sort of degenerative system to do that, plus all the fossil fuel inputs, plus all the antibiotics and antifungal, fungals and antiviruses, antiviricides that are required to, to keep those cells sterile because they don't have an immune system. Remember, right. a little a little petri dish of cells has no immune system. So what's going to protect them from infection? What's well, clean room, you know, ideally, but you've got to keep transferring these cells in subsequently bigger and bigger reactors to get to, to the final stage to scale it. You know, you can make a small batch, you can make enough to feed, you know, a few hundred people, you know, and it'll be kind of a niche boutique thing, but to, 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 to scale it to the size to feed 300 million Americans or 8 billion people. It's just, I don't think it's doable. So I think that's something there. So I think we're for the long foreseeable future, we're going to be dependent upon meat as part of the diet. If, if we care about human health, and that's, that's a question. Do they care about human health and well-being? And maybe some people don't, you know, maybe they, maybe as far as they, they care about their own family's well-being and not beyond that. I also just think that as much as these scientists and researchers are smart with the lab grown meat, yes, there's that whole environmental impact that people don't even think about. But I just am skeptical that a human can create everything perfectly in a, you know, lab made animal, and it's nutritionally correct. I just am skeptical that we can do well, that in the lab. They're even, they're even talking about, you know, they're going to make it low fat or they're going to make it, oh they're, going to, they're going to lower, they're going to lower the saturated fat and increase the polyunsaturated. I mean, they're going to artificially manipulate the fats to what they think is healthier. You know, the Walter Willett version of meat or something like that. And I think that's going to be a big problem. And, you know, it's not only that, but you know, these cells, which are getting very limited inputs, right. right, Compared right. To like a cow, a cow is out there grazing on literally thousands of different plants. I mean, they're out there, they're not just eating straight up grass or eating all kinds of forage. They actually concentrate a lot of these nutrients that are in there. And so we're, you you know, if you look at the work of Stefan von Vliet, you know, formerly of Duke, now he's at Utah State, his paper shows that there's something like 50,000 unique compounds in beef, 50,000. And you're not going to replicate those in lab meat because you don't even know what half of them are or how to get them. You're going to be messing with something that we symbiotically co-evolved with, you know, yeah. we humans co-evolved eating ruminant animals. And I mean, I think you take that out of the equation and you end up with sick humans. And, and that's what we have. Cause we've largely, as you know, I mean, the average American is eating 2.4 ounces of beef a day. That's a, that's a minuscule amount. Right. That is, that's not enough is what it is. That's why when vegans say, well, you know, everybody, even these meat eater omnivores, B12 deficiencies, cause we don't eat enough meat. Even as omnivores, we don't eat, we under eat that. You know, if, if meat is not half your plate, you're under eating it. And, right. you know, in many cases it should be your, your entire plate, depending on what you're dealing with. Yeah, no, I agree with that. So uh, how do you think we should 
support the community? I mean, do, do you believe in just buying a lot of meat and saving it and rationing it in that way? I mean, is there a solve that you see at all with all of the prices going up, um, possibly this lab meat? I mean, do we go to our um, political, you know, advocacies and try to fight this? Like, what do you, what do you think that we should do? Well, I think we should do all, everything in all things. I mean, I think you have to attack it on all fronts. I mean, I, yes, you need to let your politicians know that, Hey, I'm not giving up meat and I want you to support that. And if you, if you push to, to limit meat or eliminate meat or tax meat or to make it more inaccessible, then you're going to be fired. I mean, that's, that's, that should be step one. Obviously you got to support those ranchers on the ground because there is a big push to centralize the food system and patent the food system and heavily control the food system. So we need to decentralize. We need lots of ranchers. We need lots of farmers to continue to produce our food. We need to support those guys, not only vocally, and we need to do it vocally. I mean, it's yes, go to the farms, buy the food, support your ranchers, but also vocally tell people, yes. let them know that you appreciate what they're doing and let other people know how important these people are. You got to use our voices. I mean, this is ultimately, if we live in a market-based environment, the market will respond to what the people want and what they're willing to pay for, right? I mean, we see that. I mean, there's people, there's narratives being pushed, but sometimes people push back and that gets shut down. And so we have to step up in a big way and say, number one, I'm going to continue to eat meat. In fact, I'm going to eat more meat and I want you to produce more meat and I want you to make it so I can afford it. This is what I expect of you, government. And I don't know how you're going to do it, but you need to figure that out. You know, if you're going to send a trillion dollars and spend it overseas on foreign aid, why don't you turn around and feed feed the Americans better? You know, and this is something we have to do and we just have to, and it's not a time to be passive. And if you have benefited from the benefits of consuming more animal products, then it should be intuitively, obviously to you that you need to fight for that right because it's going to be taken away from you right i mean there are there are people that whose whole life there's whole mission in life is to eliminate all meat on the planet i mean just think about it. those people exist yeah. and if they go unchecked you know again a squeaky wheel gets the oil and so these are the people that will eventually change how you eat whether you want it or not unless you you know do it the other way that's why i'm so vocal and passionate about opposing this stuff you know i think you need to have that counterbalance there you know and i think people should have the freedom to consume the food that makes them healthy, you know, and whatever that is, whether it's a vegan diet, whether it's a carnivore diet, whether it's a Mediterranean diet, I don't care. But at the end of the day, all choices should be on the table and they should be left on the table. I agree. And I think it's also just the simplest way we can do this immediately is the way that we vote with our dollars. So I try not to support non-meat foods, not because I care too much if we purchase it, but just so that if I purchase that less, then maybe it won't be around as much. It's one less vote against that product. And um, maybe then just not supporting some of these big conglomerates, which I know is kind of impossible because it's a couple of companies that sort of own everything. But I, I think we can truly vote with our dollars. What are your thoughts about all these nuances also in the carnivore community? Maybe the PUFAs, like, do you think it moves the needle? I know we all know that seed oils aren't ideal, but some people are worried about the polyunsaturated fatty acids in pork. Um, they conventionally raised pork, for example, that may have eaten the seed, I mean, sorry, the soy and corn. And then there's also this other new camp of people eating sticks and sticks of butter as that is the way. And so then they're dramatically lowering their protein amounts. Thoughts mm. on any of these? Uh, well, I think, you know, again, the, the, dis the discussion on seed oils is an interesting one. I mean, clearly it's not an evolutionary part of our diet. I mean, right. we didn't, they weren't invented until the late 1800s. So, I mean, they've only been in the diet 100 and maybe 50 years at most. So, I mean, I don't care what you believe we ate a thousand years ago, whether it was a lot of fiber or not much fiber, mostly meat, we weren't eating these oils. Now, 
are they directly deleterious and harmful to us? There's plenty of literature that would support that supposition. Now there's other people like Walter Willett will say, well, it lowers LDL cholesterol, and that's the right, holy grail. Right. And anytime you lower LDL cholesterol, it's the greatest thing in the world. And obviously, I say that some, somewhat facetiously. But some of these cynics, well, maybe because where do we find these seed oils? Well, mostly it's in processed food. I mean, that's where most people get their, their, their uh, uh, you know, interestingly, it's kind of funny. Most people get their polyunsaturated fat via seed oils through processed food, whether it's potato chips and bread and sauces and all this garbage. Most people get their saturated fat from also from processed food. It's interesting. Only about 3% of our saturated fat consumption standard American diet is actually coming from things like beef. So most of it's coming from desserts and dessert snacks. And so, you know, you might have some milk product that's mixed into a cake or something like that. So, I mean, again, it could be confounded by that, that's that, that, that thing, but you know, like you said, is it a deal that if you have conventionally raised pork and they're fed some soy and their and, and their 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 omega you know six to three ratio or their you know absolute amount of polyunsaturated fat is elevated? I think that's a small potato issue. I think you know, like I said, you know, maybe for some people it's an issue. I don't think it's enough. Like, oh my God, no one should eat pork. I mean, I, I now full disclosure, I don't eat much pork because I, I prefer beef. I mean, I just prefer beef. Uh, but I mean, pork is the number one meat eaten around the world. Right. And if you look, at, if you look to like places like Asia, you know, like Japan and, you know, different regions around there where people live to be 85, 90 routinely, they're eating a hell of a lot of pork. And I guarantee a lot of that pork, particularly these days, is going to be conventionally raised. And so right. the question is, is it that detrimental? I think probably it's not that big of a deal. I think, you know, there's bigger things to worry about, you know, and like I said, uh, for the average person doing the diet, hey, man, just eat what you enjoy, eat some pork chops if you like them. You know, it's, it's obviously more, it's often a more affordable beef meat than beef is for a lot of people that are on a budget. You know, pork tends to be a little cheaper. So I don't worry about so much about that. I think you can, I think you can probably, you know, it's one of those things where it's kind of like, you know, this 80-20 rule where you can get right. most of that, most of the stuff done. And then, you know, maybe if you're still having some issue, maybe you can dial that back or shift it around or something like that. But I, I you know, again, to make a blanket recommendation that no one should be eating conventionally raised pork or no one should be eating conventionally raised beef to me is is just not it's not necessary and it's not true for most people there again there may be exceptions to that yeah i think if people were to just start carnivore with the meats they enjoy even if it's just grocery meats and conventional most people will find healing at a certain point if you maybe are sensitive to histamines or if there's something else and then you want to dial into maybe quote unquote cleaner meats then fine you can try that but a couple things that I've just tested with my clientele is there's a blood test that you can do. It's just, you just prick your finger, put a drop, and then they will read your omega-3, omega-6 counts. And what um, there's a doctor, Dr. Bill Harris, he just focuses on these omegas a lot. And he's done a lot of research and basically says your cells will try to find the balance before it gets sick. So even if you're eating a ton of omega-6s, it's not going to be one in the same in your blood. So if you are eating a lot of omega sixes and you're still kind of healthy, your body will do that balance to be, try to be like that four to one. And over time, as you're sick, maybe that will shift a little bit. And as I've done a lot of blood work on the omega three, six test, it's only like $90. And I see the same thing. So people, they can eat only higher fish and maybe that will move the needle a lot, but whether it's grass finished cows, or if it's these conventionally raised pork, there's no real difference in the omega count. And it's just, again, without data, I think there's a lot of people that say PUFAs are bad and in pork, there's a lot. And so therefore we should be limiting it, but where's the proof in that? Where's the clientele 
and the data that actually shows that because I see in my blood work with my clientele that is specifically eating carnivore that does not hold true. Yeah, I mean, this is all a longevity, you know, supposition, a heart disease yes. supposition that, you know, if we, if we raise our omega-3 to 6 ratio, we're going to somehow protect ourselves from heart disease. And this is based on observations of population, Japan, Inuit. And it, and it turns out, it's interesting, there was a recent study out there that showed that that actually was not a reason for their longevity or not longevity. In fact, I, I know, Am- like I mentioned, Amber Horn, she pointed out, you know, it's like, you know, there's a lot of other factors that make these people in Japan live longer. It may be that they consume more omega-3 in the, in the form of fish, but it may be because they're not obese. It may be because they value activity. You know, there's a lot of things that are reason there. So the omega-3 is still is still a hypothesis that it, that, it, that it provides longevity based on, again, population studies, epidemiology, which are which are subject to, to a whole bunch of uh, confounders. So it may not even matter anyway. And again, I will say, I don't know how to predict the future. I don't know if, if karma is going to make people live longer or shorter. I, I just, I can't know that. I mean, I don't think anybody, I think, I think, I don't think you can say that for any diet. What I can say is that I can see people that are sick and they get healthier. If we stick to that as our sort of goal, I think we're going to do a lot more good rather than saying, well, uh, you know, cause we, we see this all the time. We see these conventional nutritionists. Well, yeah, maybe you got better and you cut out your symptoms. You don't have an autoimmune disease anymore and you got off medicines. That's okay, but you're really risking your health in the future. How do you know that? You don't really know that. So, I mean, again, I just say, hey, let's let's take sick people and make them healthy today, you know, tomorrow. And and then let the let let the chips fall where they weigh after that. Mm-hmm. And you know, people can, you know, like I like I interview I I literally interview people every single day that have recovered health issues on carnivore. And I always ask them, hey, what about if your heart disease risk went up? What if you, what if this is going to take five years off your life from heart disease? Almost without exception, every one of them says, I don't really care because my quality of life is so much better. And, and you know, I don't believe it anyway, but even if it were, I feel so much better with this that I'm, that I'm not willing to change that. So I think that's something we have to respect. I honestly think probably the omega-3, the omega-6 ratio is probably overemphasized. And I, I remember I had a discussion with Paul Mason about this several years ago. And I said, hey man, I don't know that I don't know that it's actually the deal. And he and I went back and forth and finally he conceded. He said, yeah, you know, I think you're right. <laughs> I think it may be not something that, that that's that important, but you are right. If you're really worried about it, just eat a hunk of fish once a week and you're, you're gonna you're gonna move your omega-6, your three ratio way up relative to that. You eat a piece of salmon once a week and that'll change it more than whether you're worried about poof of pork or grass-finished beef, just eat a hunk of meat once a week, a hunk, a hunk of fish. I, I love that you say, if it makes you feel better today and in this foreseeable short term, I think that's so important instead of worrying about what the future and no one can predict the future. I think that's such a powerful, what you just brought up. What are your thoughts about when you eat super high fat? So there's a lot of people, even in the ketogenic space that the reason why they eat lower protein, and then maybe they add lots of MCTs or butter or whatever the other fat is, their argument is, well, ketogenic diets or keto diets are muscle sparing. So therefore it's okay that they're eating only like 40, 60 grams of protein for somebody that's like 200 pounds. What are your thoughts? Is it okay that we're eating that little meat? Um, I, you know, it, it doesn't work for me. I can tell you that I did that. <laughs> I did that approach. I tried that. I, I tried a fairly low calorie, very high fat, relatively low protein. And I lost a ton of muscle. I got down okay. like right now I'm 257 pounds and I, I feel pretty good. This is a pretty good weight for me. I'm six, five. I'm a big guy. I got down all the way down to 204 pounds. Oh, wow. I mean, I, you know, I started, I was pretty good looking at, you know, 230. I was pretty shredded rip, you know, super lean. And then it, I just kept losing and muscle just started coming off me. And, and, and that was something. So I think there is, you know, a value, you know, 
again, I think there's a range of fat that we exist in that, that's pretty comfortable. It can be anywhere from 50% up to maybe 90% of our calories coming from fat. Some people are going to fall in that spectrum. I mean, right. you're not going to, you're, you're not going to survive very long eating 70% protein. I mean, you got to have a decent amount of fat. I mean, but then there's a point where what is too much. And you know, like I said, if you're gobbling down sticks of butter every day, I mean, again, you can just look back to historical precedents. You know, it's like, you look at how our digestive system is set up to, to, to absorb things. We're, we're designed to eat whole unprocessed natural foods in the most part. Once we start turning things into powder, a la flour, a la sugar, a la right. protein powder. Once we start concentrating nutrients, like, like butter is this concentrated fat. That's not a natural thing for humans to eat. We just never did that. And our, and our digestive system is not designed to set up to, to do that. And so, you know, you get this, you know, weird stimulation of incretin hormones, you, you know, you've got GIP proximally and GLP distally, and it's a very temporal sequence that's supposed to occur. And, and over a period of, you know, there, there's a very specific time-directed fashion that we're supposed to digest things. And when you're eating concentrated fats to that degree, you kind of bypass a lot of that stuff. I see a lot of people, they start doing, they have a lot of steatorrhea. I mean, it just runs right through them. Right, right. That's an issue for sure. Yeah. But I mean, under protein, and I guess, you know, the argument is how much protein do you need? You guys, listen, you guys, you listen to guys like Stephen Gundry, who's saying, well, you're swallowing all this mucus and you're absorbing protein from that. I say, okay, so you have the, what the snot and spinach diet or something like that. It's not very practical. My bias has been towards preservation of lean mass, athleticism, being strong. So I definitely have that bias there. And I'm always going to sort of kind of challenge people to, to, to go that way. And I think for most people, that's probably the better answer. Now, certain conditions, you know, maybe somebody has epilepsy, maybe there's somebody with cancer yes, and they want yes, to really yeah. boost their GKI, you know, glucose ketone index of GKI. You know, you can make that argument maybe, but I mean, I don't know that you know, if, if 70% of the calories in my diet is coming from butter and I'm barely eating protein, I'm going to do that for, you know, months on it. And I've seen these people on social, I only ate 12 sticks of butter a day for a month or something. I mean, I don't know, whatever it is. It's just kind of like, to me, that doesn't make sense. It's just intuitively. I mean, I guess some people say it intuitively doesn't make sense to make eat steak every day, but I'm like, there are literally animals in the wild that do this. There's right. no like, wild animal that's eating butter every day. I mean, it's just like, you know, th that doesn't exist. I mean, it's kind of like, where do you even draw even another animal analogy to this? It's interesting to see. As someone who has a very, you know, unconventional dietary practice, you know, both of us are kind of on the fringe anyway. It's like, sure. well, you got to look at these people and say, well, you know, hey man, if it's working for them, uh, you know, let's see what happens. But at the end of the day, I guess the problem is a lot of people are starting this diet in a very unhealthy situation, morbidly obese, and really almost anything you do in those people are going to lose weight, you know. But then when you start talking about how do I get fit and lean and muscular and strong and active, it's usually not going to be eating, you know, six sticks of butter a day and, and two ounces of meat. I mean, that's generally not going to happen, right? right. I mean, if, I mean, you, you can you can say it. maybe it'll help you lose that lose that first 30, 40 pounds, sure, perhaps. But then after a period of time, you're going to have to sort of wake up to reality and say, there's a protein requirement that you should probably be hitting, you know? And, and I think, yes, you can have the lowest possible blood glucose on, on pure sticks of butter. Okay. Is it, what's going on with your body composition? What's happening here? Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. When I was ketogenic, I did keto diet for a year. I was plant-based. So, I mean, I still, I, I would eat fish occasionally, but generally speaking, I was eating almost 80% fat with very limited protein. And some of that was plant-based protein. So I was eating maybe 40 to 60 grams of protein a day. And I was, I had ketones in the seven milliliters. And so I felt great. And, but over time I noticed I got really thin. I was getting to be very, very thin when I had my eating disorder days. And 
ultimately when I shifted over to carnivore, yes, I gained a little bit of weight, but I think it was because I was more on the emaciated side. And then I started building more muscle. And as I work out, I realized even if the science proves that um, being in a ketogenic state and ketones are muscle sparing, I don't want to hedge on that bet and assume that, well, my ketones will save my muscle mass because I know that muscle mass is what will give you longevity. Um, I heard a, a scary statistic that 60 women over the age of 65, if they fall, there's a 50% chance that they will never walk again. And the way that to circumvent that is having enough muscle mass. So I don't want to risk personally, not eating enough protein and saving my muscle mass so that hopefully if I even do fall that I don't, that I can walk again. And so I think that's where it's concerning. Yes, I think you can use ketogenic carnivore diets, therapeutically, we see that in that Hungary um, clinic, but long-term for longevity and muscle mass and just overall health, I think we need to eat sufficient protein. And do you have a definition of what is considered sufficient protein? Well, I mean, if you, if you, if you go, if you defer to guys like uh, Don Lane and Stu Phillips and stuff like that, use right. the protein research, you know, they're going to say 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram. That's their, their range. I mean, I think for some athletes and some guys that are putting on muscle, you might bump that up to 2.2, 2.6. So that's quite a bit of protein. I mean, I, I tend to, you know, err on the side of a little bit more protein. So I, I usually tell people about a pound per a gram per pound of ideal body weight or something like that is, is, it's, you know, generally about the right amount that may be a little much for some people, but I mean, certainly not much less than that. I think sure. it's pretty, pretty reasonable for most people. Um, I mean, and that, that also lines up with caloric requirements. You know, if you look at like, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a, you know, 200 pound male and I need to get 2,500 calories a day, I'm looking at, you know, something like two, 200 grams of protein and 200 grams of fat, you know, that's, you know, 800 grams, 800 calories of protein. And what is it? Uh, 200 times nine, 1800 calories. That's 2,600 calories. That's probably about what I need. You know, and if you're, if you're thinking about from whole food sources, and again, if your diet isn't 90% butter and you're going to eat an actual food, that's a whole food, you're going to get that much protein anyway. And, you know, just from a caloric requirement. So I think that's a pretty reasonable place to start. And I think, Again, you can dial it up or down, you know, based upon your results. But again, if you're, like I said, when we're losing weight, we want to try to preserve as much lean mass as possible. Right. And multiple studies show that the best way to do that is eat sufficient protein and then also strength train, you know, and, and, and while, you're weight, while you're losing weight. And I get a lot of people, again, we just have such a weird population where there's so many obese people that have never existed like they do in the population. And so it's like, there are so many things that can make them lose weight. Um, relative to what they're currently doing. And, you know, the question is, you know, what is your, what is your ultimate goal here? And I, I, you know, like I said, I, I always defer to the side of having more muscle or more lean mass, bone density, you know, you know, thicker skin, whatever. Uh, you know, I'm biased to that way. Cause I, that's what I like to do, but you know, maybe, maybe somebody else has a different goal, but I agree with you with it, with the emaciated type of thing. Yeah. You can get very, 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 very skinny and, and very, and weigh a little bit, but is that healthier than, you know, weighing 10 pounds more and having a little more lean tissue? Probably not. Right. No. And I absolutely agree. And um, if you look at ounce to ounce of any type of fat and then muscle meat, it's the nutrients are mostly in muscle meat. So that's the other thing. If you eat super high fat, are you even getting enough nutrition from the amino acids and also the, just the vitamins and minerals that are also in these meats? So I want to move on a little bit to censorship. Um, I know both you and I have been censored on Instagram. Um, I think you've also been censored on Twitter as well. I'm not really active on Twitter. Thoughts on this censorship and, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's all, it's obviously awful. I mean, it's it's kind of like, you know, I was I was permanently banned from Twitter. It was kind of okay. funny. I, mean, I was permanently banned and then they gave it back to me, which is kind of funny also. But 
like six months later. I've been suspended on YouTube about five times. I've had oh. Instagram shadow banned multiple times. You know, it's just, uh, you know, and it, you know, some of that has to do with talking about pandemic stuff. Some of it has to talk with just about health in general. I had a post pulled out on Instagram because I said, I pulled a study that refer, it was talking about the nutritional superiority of beef versus chicken in the complementary weaning period, you know, babies when they're, when they're sure. adding food into breastfeeding and talking about better iron content and all these things. And I, and I put beef for babies and I referenced a study and, and they pulled that post down. Like it was misinformation or wrong information. I'm like, this is a scientific peer reviewed study talking about the benefits of beef. And and so you, you got to wonder about that. I think, unfortunately, you know, we saw this with, with the COVID, uh, you know, pandemic, right. a lot of that. And then some of, with some of the political speech. And, and, and I think we're, we're just going to see more of it. We're going to start seeing probably if you push back on, you know, climate agenda stuff if you push back even on dietary stuff they may start shutting that stuff down which i'm very very concerned about obviously because what you and i do and what our whole company revolves on is is about getting out a message about there about fixing nutrition and you know it's we shouldn't all be eating a mostly plant-based diet which is you know largely processed plant-based diet to, to be honest and and pushing back against that you know just because some company uh is paying off you know their their lobbying to, for their you know, their politicians are, you know, paying off the media to do that. So it's a real issue. It's a, it's a real problem. I know that, you know, Twitter has recently with Elon Musk at the helm right. has sort of dialed back on the censorship. Hopefully other social media platforms will, will get the message. It's so, you know, we don't want censorship. Um, you know, like I said, the best, you know, the best disinfectant is sunlight. You know, if, if you're up there putting spouting out garbage and stupid stuff, you know, en enough eyes on that will basically either it'll either it'll either work or it won't. It's like carnivore. It's like when I first started talking about carnivore diet, kind of crazy to me when I first witnessed it. And then I was like, OK, I'm going to try. And then I experienced it. I said, well, I'm going to share my, my experience. And there were people saying you're crazy, you're stupid, you're you know, why are you doing this stuff? And here we are five years later. And we've got, gosh, tens upon tens of thousands of people now that have literally regained their health. And that never would have been allowed to happen or never would have happened had myself and some other people been silenced early on. Right. And, and, and so I think that's something that the only way discoveries occur is when people are looking. And, you know, some of those discoveries are, fa are faulty and they're wrong, but some of them are right. You know, and if you if you just say, hey, the science settled, we're not talking about anything else and we're done. And we, we're going to get what we get. And where are we at as a society? We're in a bad place right now. You know, 42% of BC rate projected to be 50% by 2030. I mean, we're not in a good place. Right. So we need a lot. We need a lot of novel ideas out there. And censorship is not the way to get those. Yeah. And instead of censoring or being open about everything, they'll have now support for, you know, healthy at any size instead of, well, maybe we need to start doing things to change our diet and things like that. Um, I was censored for sharing that fish. If you are worried about eating fish and the mercury levels that um, on the CDC website, I shared ingredients on certain shots and it was deemed misinformation, but it was literally a screenshot of the CDC's website. And so my concern more of, I, I do agree the censorship is real. I had a colleague that was censored for saying that um, a certain a drink that she was sharing was great for breastfeeding women. And because she used the word women, that was also flagged. But the concern is that people are reporting these and that's why it gets flagged. And it's just that whole policing in our society these days. It's pretty, pretty unfortunate. But she used the word women. What do you mean? So instead of saying human, um, because she was saying this is for, you know, the gender thing, it oh was gender bias. I know. 
breastfeeding women is concerned. Yes, she got deemed for that one. Breastfeeding peoples, I guess. Yes, she was supposed to say breastfeeding human. Oh my god, I'm not even joking. Yeah, I just saw that uh, UCLA has just banned the word field. Oh, I heard that Stanford is banning, uh, like saying guys or. It's crazy. I mean, it's just it's just gotten nonsense. I mean, gosh, I hope. You know, it maybe there's well, hopefully there's a place where normal people can go to interact. <laughs> people that are offended by everything, because I mean, it's after a while, it's like you you you're just not going to anything. There'll be no interaction. This is like right. I, I'm not even going to interact with you because I don't know what I'm going to offend you for. I think now, if I'm not mistaken, I think if you say this is an obese person, that's offensive. You're supposed oh. to say this is a person. This is a person living with obesity. It's just, it's like, you know, because you're not, because if you say obese person, you're making their whole identity. As a person. <laughs> I don't, I it's crazy times. And I, I just say fat people. I mean, I, I, I'm just crass. I'm just like, I don't really care. I'm just going to, I'm going to call it like it is. And you know, if it, if it, if it offends somebody, I don't care that much. I mean, I, I want to get the message out there. And I want, you know, ultimately I want to help people that are obese right, or right. fat or whatever you want to call them to get healthier because no one really wants that in my mind. And I think if you talk to most of them, they're like, I would much prefer not to be morbidly obese. I would prefer to be at a healthy body weight. And I'm adopting this healthy and undersized mantra because I can't lose the weight and I feel that I'm stuck in this situation. I have to live with this. And, you know, it's, it's, it's what I got to do for my mental, mental sanity. I guess I get that. But I mean, at the same time, ignoring it or glorifying it or promoting it is not going to make it away, go away. It's right. only going to make it happen more frequently because more and more kids are going to be, you know, you normalize it and then every, you know, everybody, you know, the kids expect it by the, well, by the time I'm 20, I should be 40 pounds overweight. That's, you know, a girl, you know, a girl, I mean, it's, they expect to see that. And then, and, and, and oh, and then I'm probably going to be on some, you know, GLP one agonist taking shots, you know, you know, every day or every once a week for the rest of my life. I mean, this is becoming normalized and who benefits from that? Well, we know who benefits from that. You know, these pharmaceutical companies, these processed food companies and the, and the, and the government employees that get the kickbacks from them. This is the whole city. You know, it's all, it's, it's all a big con. Uh, for sure. And, you know, the more obese people there are, the more money that somebody's going to make on that. And, and so I think that's, that's where it's coming from. Yeah. I, I think if we were to just, you know, call a spade a spade, and if we were to just not accept it, then people will have to figure out how to, if, if we just didn't glorify that it's okay to be overweight or be beyond a certain health size, because, Hey, we should love everyone. But if we were to just say, no, actually that's a sign of illness then maybe people will be forced to do something about it rather than, well, I'll just take the medicine. I'll just take the metformin or the insulin or this GLP one now. And that would push people as you're saying to change. And the more we accept everything, the the more we listen to these higher ups and these, um, these agendas, we are sicker than ever. People are on all these mental illness medications. I mean, that's where I suffer from was debilitating depression and anxiety And I don't suffer from that anymore because of the change of my diet. Whereas my psychiatrist told me you will have to take antidepressants for the rest of your life because you were kind of born with just a low mood and that's okay. And as soon as I change my diet, I don't have those days. And if people were to just fight for more, instead of having to live with these medications, because if you're obese and you're happy, maybe it's okay. But if you're not, and you have aches and you're ill, then there is another way. And I think that's what we're both trying to share. I liken it to, you know, back in 1954, no, I think it was 54. Yeah, we had, a, we had we, 45% of Americans smoke cigarettes. That was, a, that was the old time peak. Now we're down to 14%. And why was that? Because the government said smoking is bad for you. The Surgeon General put out a warning and 
companies started to ban it in their lot in, in in the in the workplace. You, you couldn't smoke on planes. I don't know if you ever have you ever smoked flown on a plane where they allowed smoking. No. I did that when I was younger. That was awful. I mean, okay. I, I took some international flights as a kid and people were smoking. I, I got out of there and my eyes were blood red. It was just wow. awful, awful. But we still allow that. And then we we had a con- we made a concerted effort nationally to do that. We need to do the same thing with the process, ultra processed food. We yes. just need the surgeon general needs to declare this is a health hazard and we need to ban it from we start banning it. I mean, that that's ultimately what we need to do until we're willing to do that and, you know, suck it up. You're going to have to, you're going to lose a lot of money. Somebody's going to lose a lot of money. You know, we're going to end up with these issues. And I think we don't have the, if we don't have the, and the problem is, you know, back when, you know, 45% of the people were smoking, 55% weren't right now, 99% of the people are eating ultra processed junk food. I mean, everybody's doing it. Everybody's addicted to this stuff. I mean, literally the standard American diet is an eating disorder. I mean, if you want to look at eating disorders, that is a definition of an eating disorder. It's a definition of addiction because it harms you and know, you know it's harming you and yet you continue to do it over and over again every single day. I know it sounds draconian and it's it's anti-freedom and that type of stuff. And, and I see that, but I mean, I think what is it going to take to significantly change our chronic disease epidemic? We need to first declare it a public health hazard. I mean, I think somebody needs to go out there and say, and put warning labels on it. Even if you don't ban the food, which I don't think is going to happen, but at the very least, say you get an Oreo, a pack of Oreo cookies that says, warning, this food has been shown to increase your risk for diabetes, cancer, and heart disease, right on the label. And until we're willing to do that, you know, we're going to get what we get. And 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 and, and why don't we want to do that? Because drug companies are going to be making Wagovi and semaglutide and, and whatever else is going to come after that. And they're going to keep just injecting medicines in these people to the tune of thousands of dollars every month. And and that's, and, you know, if you look at the federal lobbying budgets, I mean, pharmaceuticals, number one, they're up there, right. the biggest lobbying agency in the, in the country. And, and that's just what they report. And what are they doing under the table? Who are they bribing? No one knows about a lot more, I'm sure. Right. And if people were to just change their diet, the pharmaceutical companies would just not have enough sick people to treat. And it's just, yeah. it's like yeah. such a simple fix. Yep. But um, it's it's just so concerning, you know, as we're closing, as people listen to this, that may not have even tried a carnivore diet, or maybe have just dabbled in it a little bit. Are there any tips that you recommend for people that are just getting started? Uh, yeah, sure. So I think uh, for my purposes, you know, again, this is a generic person with no specific diseases. <laughs> Enjoy it. Enjoy. Make food you like. Include a little bit of variety in there. You know, eat enough. My gosh, most people. You know, if you come into it with a mindset, I got to restrict. I got to restrict. It's already restrictive enough. You don't need right. to just restrict calories. Enjoy. You know, I, I wouldn't get so worried about eat this many macros or whatever. Just you know, fatty red meat works pretty well for most people. That's a pretty good heuristic to live by. Eat enough. Enjoy it. You know, I mean, you're probably going to have some fluid shifting around due to due to changing insulin levels. So, make sure you stay hydrated. And just, just have fun with it. My gosh. And and, and I think the biggest thing, because people ask me, well, how much am I supposed to eat? I find that most people, you know, like particularly when we're coming with like weight loss, most people are, you know, dealing with some level of food addiction. That's, it's not, that's not why they're, it wasn't, they weren't 300 pounds because they're eating too many, you know, ribeye steaks. It's because they're eating ice cream and cookies and junk and pizzas and all that stuff. And so I tell, and they ask me, how much do I need to eat? I say, eat enough. So you don't want a cupcake. Simple as that. Mm How much steak should I eat? eat enough so you don't want a cupcake and just do that and run with that for a few months. And, you know, you may or may not gain weight. You may lose weight. You may gain weight. Who knows? But at least you, you sort of put those addictions in the back and then you can start to sort of dial in a little bit, but have fun with it. Enjoy it. You know, look forward to what you're eating. Don't just sit down there and eat a bowl of plain ground beef every day, every meal. That's going to be so boring. That's right. going to be so depressing. I wouldn't do that. Make it fun. If you need to use some seasonings in the beginning, use that stuff. 
you know, you might have to take them out later. Like again, if you have some certain sensitivity to stuff, you may have to take it out, but have fun with it. Enjoy it. Use some recipes, get some support. That's the biggest thing. You know, what's the best supplement for a carnivore diet support, you know, vitamin support, right. Get people that are going to, that are going to encourage you. They're going to, that are going to challenge you. that are going to motivate you. that are going to be there to answer your questions. And there's all kinds of resources out there. I know you've got something I've got, you know, carnivore diet, you know, Rivero, there's lots of other communities out there. Go utilize some of those things have fun. I mean, enjoy it. Don't worry about it. Just, just chill out, relax. Yeah, I think that's good. I would just add consistency. So do the things you enjoy and that will allow you to be consistent. If forcing down liver or um, eating some amount of carbs, but then it makes you feel joint pain the next day, or it makes you just feel a little of that, um, you know, the carb fatigue, if those things are not giving you health, or if adding sticks of butter is making you stay in the bathroom. And if these are not allowing you to stay consistent, then maybe that's not the right path for you. Like you said, eat fatty meats and eat the meats you enjoy. And then you can always fine tune things later, but make sure you eat enough. Um, I think a lot of women, especially, especially older women, they get full fast and they think, well, I'm listening to my hunger cues and they tend to undereat. But like you said, most of your plate should be meat. And if you were eating maybe six ounces before, maybe you have to move up to 10 and maybe you start that way. I agree with you. It has to be fun and it should be consistent. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point about the hunger. And a lot of people, you know, they, they, it's very satiating for a lot of people yes. and society provoking. And so you, you might undereat. And so, like I said, if you, you know, even though you're not hungry, if you're tired, if you don't have any energy, if your mood is down, you just might need to eat a little bit more. Yeah. You know, maybe just have a little bit, you know, maybe increase your food by 20%. And, and, and go from there. Okay. Well, as we're closing, thank you so much for, you know, just chatting with me. Uh, where can people find you, Rivero? Are you still doing the group coaching, the individual? Yeah. So um, every single day at right now, currently carnivore.diet, I am doing okay. a, a group meeting every day at 9 a.m. Pacific time. I have obviously social media on Instagram, Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Baker, B-A-K-E-R, 1967. I'm on MD at YouTube and Sean Baker MD on TikTok. Rivera will be starting, you know, basically in in the, in the late spring, early fall, where we'll actually be there. But I mean, to, to contact me directly, and I do I, I do 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 still some one on one individual consultations for people. Uh, I usually reserve an hour a day to do that during the weekdays. So I've got time; you can book on my calendar. But yeah, I mean, I'm like I said, I, I you know, if you want to interact directly with me in, a, in a, just a kind of a general fashion without a consultation, just hop on carnivore.diet, You know. You can join that for free and hop in there and, and just chat. We've had a whole bunch of people for World Car Warm Months. It's been a lot of fun seeing some new folks. And, uh, you know, a lot of people have new, a lot of questions, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, I enjoy this very much. I enjoy talking to people every day. Yeah, that's exciting. It's wonderful the movement you've really started and just for all the healing that you've done in the world. So I just appreciate you so much. And I just appreciate that even after five, six years, you just are so grounded in your information. Sometimes it can come off as mean to the vegans. And I know it's just, you know, facetious, but I just appreciate that you didn't jump on this. You must do this on carnivore for it to work perfectly because I don't think you really, there's no one answer for everybody. So I appreciate you so much. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, like I said, I just, I am led by what I see result wise. And, you know, if something makes me significantly change, I will change. But I mean, up to this point, I mean, the things that I found to be true six years ago is still true today. Yes. And I, you know, I think these are the things that Stefanson found true to be in 19, you know, 20 are still true today. I mean, I don't think human physiology has changed any significant way in the last five years to where we suddenly need to be eating liver pill supplements. I mean, I just, I just don't think it has happened. So 
Anyway, let's stop. All right. Thank you so much, G. Thank you for joining me today. I'll talk to you later. Okay, guys, I hope that this conversation was helpful for you. I try to pick up on a lot of topics that are concerns in the community, especially today. As we are finishing up World Carnivore Month, I hope that you have seen tremendous benefits of eating an all meat or mostly meat based diet. The important thing is that we cannot get our meat banned. It is a therapeutic way of eating and really the way that we've always eaten as humans since long, long ago. If you have healed on an all meat or a meat based diet, I hope you share the benefits of eating animal based foods to your communities. This is how we will fight the agenda that's against eating meat. Okay, guys, I hope that this conversation provided you another lover for healing. Make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.